Hi folks, welcome to the Happy Saver podcast. Your friends might not want to talk about their journey with money, but I sure do. I'm Ruth and I'm a blogger on personal finance in New Zealand and in this podcast series I tell the stories of Kiwis and their experiences with the money in their lives. I was delighted to speak with Alan about his financial journey and I was surprised too. He is the father of a good friend, a reserved yet warm and very generous person, but ultimately someone that I thought I had zero chance of talking money with. How wrong was I? Alan is 71 and I look at people of his generation and I think to myself, how did you get yourself to this point right here, right now? What has your journey through life been like and what have you done, either right or wrong, that I can learn from? I was delighted that he said he would answer my many questions. But before I get into it, let's hear from today's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Superlife's My Future Fund. We all want the best for our kids and this fund is designed to help you help them save for their future. This fund is flexible so that anyone can save for a child because My Future Fund is not just for parents. More than one person can save for the same child at the same time, such as grandparents, other relatives, godparents and friends. It is an ideal vehicle to receive cash presents for birthdays or the holiday season. This is truly the gift that keeps on giving. Superlife's fees are amongst the lowest in the market and there are a broad range of investment options to choose from including age steps which sets the child's allocation to growth assets based on their age. Visit superlife.co.nz and follow the quick link invest for children to find out more. And just so you know Superlife is managed by SmartShares and you can download a copy of the product disclosure statement at superlife.co.nz for more information. To set the scene, Alan was born in Wellington, New Zealand in 1947, making him just slightly younger than my own parents. And neither of his parents were actually from Wellington, but had ended up there because during the war, his dad was needed to work there in, air quotes, any job the government deemed important. He was off a small farm in Harawa. The government needed his skills working in Wellington at the wharfs. And later, when he met his future wife, which was Alan's mum, he was working as a tram driver. His mum was raised in Geraldine in Canterbury and was the oldest of, wait for it, nine children. Now she only finished primary school before her full-time job became looking after all of these siblings at home. But she was in Wellington on a visit to her brother and she kind of never went back home to look after all of those siblings. Yeah, and who could blame her? She took on a job working at the Kilburnie Nurses Home and then she met Alan's dad. So, both of his parents came from extremely hard-working families, and although Alan was born in Wellington, he, in actual fact, moved repeatedly throughout his childhood with his parents and with his brother. And they moved to where the work was, which included building the Tekapo Power Scheme and working on a high country sheep station in the South Island. And when Alan got to school age, his mother actually schooled him by correspondence and they continued to move around farms in Canterbury until at the age of about seven when he started at his first proper school. His dad was a risk taker and after a friend of his sent him a copy of an ad calling for trainee primary school teachers, he decided to apply. Apparently, they were desperately short of teachers and they were running short, intense courses to get people trained up quickly. And once trained, the family bounced around from Christchurch to Peel Peel near Tikawiti and back to Christchurch where Alan finally finished up his school education. And I was interested to ask him 
What was one piece of advice, either good or bad, that his parents taught him about money, given that he was born in 1947? Alan described his parents as being like most in New Zealand at that time. They were working class, they had no money in their lives, and they both struggled as youngsters in not particularly well-off circumstances. Alan's childhood was enjoyable, but they didn't have much money either. His mother worked intermittently as a cook. She was apparently a really excellent cook at a restaurant in a department store called Beth's in Christchurch. And their income came mostly from his dad's jobs, but none of them were ever highly paid. And even when he worked as a teacher, he actually worked a second job in a green grocer shop. So he and his brother, they were well fed and looked after, but there was never much money available. And the memory he had was that they were advised and taught to teach money with respect and that you didn't waste money. His mother said, don't ever buy something if you can't afford to pay for it today. And if they wanted something, they always paid upfront for it with cash. His mother lived to 93 and his father to 87. And Alan said that they set a good example for him to follow. No one used credit because there was no credit. After finishing school, Alan went off to university, in his case to Canterbury, without much clue about what to do there. Yep, I know that feeling, I did the same. So he did a bachelor's degree in English and a master's in history. And then he decided to follow in his father's footsteps and become a teacher. And Lord knows he had enough experience of attending a wide range of schools himself to get a feel for teaching as a career. So in 1970, he began as a secondary school teacher in Christchurch in one of the schools he had attended himself. And ultimately, Alan stayed in this profession his entire working life. And 1970 proved to be a year of new beginnings because it was also in this year that he went on a blind date to the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid with a young woman called Joan, a good friend of his brother's girlfriend. They married in 1972. Now, listen up, all you young women hearing this podcast who want to feel inspired. Joan was a psychology graduate and went straight from her graduation into a job with BHP in Wollongong, Australia and she worked as a computer programmer. So in a very small way, we have Joan to thank for helping in the evolution of the computing industry. Now, she really enjoyed this, but she wanted to take her studies further. So she returned to university and completed her master's in psychology. While at university, she had noticed that Alan really enjoyed his teaching. So Joan did a further year of training and she qualified as a primary school teacher. So now there were two teachers in the family. At this time, there was a shortage of teachers in rural areas in New Zealand, so the government put a cap on how much you could earn if you stayed in a city. Your salary would not increase at all once you reached a certain age, but if you moved to a rural area, well, you could get a higher salary. So they wrote to a school in Southland, outlining their qualifications and the fact that they could hire not one, but two fully qualified teachers. The principal of the school not only read their letter, but to Alan's great surprise, he immediately drove all the way to Christchurch, knocked on their door early on a Saturday morning, surprising Alan and his PJs, and he sold them on the merits of Southland and the fact that they could both get jobs and that there was a house available for them. So, a few weeks later, this proactive couple secured better paying jobs than the city could offer, up to six, and off they went. Alan to a secondary school and Joan to a primary school and they stayed in the Southland area living both in town and on farms for three really enjoyable years and Alan even got to drive the school bus. Now that is a multitasking teacher right there. When Joan became pregnant with the first of their three daughters it coincided with a vacancy in a school back in Christchurch 
as the head of English. Now, this was a promotion and an excellent opportunity to advance Alan's career, let Joan be a stay-at-home mum, and to buy their very first house. And they bought a house in Hallswell, which is a suburb of Christchurch, with a reasonable size section in 1975 for under $20,000. They took on a very small mortgage to do this, and a couple of years later they actually sold up and they bought in another Christchurch suburb of St Martin's for $28,000, and they lived there till 1982, which is the year that new opportunities started to present themselves. The school Alan taught at allowed their staff to apply for up to a two-year leave of absence where they could keep your job open for you, at which point you had to return to the school and work for at least one more year. A friend had told them about teaching in Singapore and suggested that it might be a great idea to have a different teaching experience in a different school system where you taught non-English speakers. So after quite a protracted application process, his application was accepted and in 1983, He was sent to a school in Singapore teaching 17 to 18 year olds. He had absolutely no say where they went exactly, but he accepted the position regardless. They rented out their home in Christchurch and they took the whole whānau with them. The youngest daughter was just three. His older children attended an international school there and they all lived on the ninth floor of a nine-story apartment building, a lifestyle completely removed from the leafy suburbs of Christchurch. He described this time as a novel experience because Alan is actually very understated. But after two years, as agreed, they returned to Christchurch and to his previous job. But by that stage, they had really fallen for Singapore. And in 1986, they returned, this time for a 10-year period. They sold their home, for which they paid $28,000. Well, they sold it for $95,000. So over a 10-year period, that had appreciated significantly in value. And for them, this is where their investing really started. They had a problem that was, what do you do with a lump of cash? They had no idea, so they spoke to their lawyer, who put them onto a friend of his who was an accountant. And apparently, he had the idea to tell people not to invest in houses, which he viewed as a big hassle, but to invest instead in an industrial building. He advised that the returns were really good, and for a small fee, he would oversee it in their absence. So on that advice, they purchased for cash a building that housed a long-established printing company, their view correctly being that the business was unlikely to up sticks and leave. And once again, off to Singapore they went, where their daughters all attended school, and by this time, Joan decided to return to working as a teacher as well. Now all the while, the tenants paid the rent on time each month back in New Zealand. The salary in Singapore was significantly better, aided by the fact that the government ran a system of bonuses. If the economy did well, that meant the public service workers received a bonus and he recalls receiving 16 months of pay for a 12-month period of work. You still paid tax on your earnings but the extra salary was cream on top and during this 10-year stint the economy did very well so they were lucky and he told me that they still operate the system in Singapore today. And because I had spent many years living on Alan's single wage, when Joan returned to work there was no lifestyle inflation at all. They continued to live on Alan's salary just as they had been doing and they saved Joan's entire wage for all of that period of work which is forward thinking and pretty impressive in my books. But then that is probably just me putting a 2018 view on things. Lifestyle inflation was not a term they ever would have used back then but common sense was and to them it was just common sense that they would not suddenly just go ahead and spend the second wage. They didn't need it for daily living so they saved it instead. 
1996, they came back to New Zealand so their own children could spend a bit of time in our education system. They sold their industrial building for a profit and they purchased a recently completed brand new home using cash in Rickerton. And this is the home that Alan was speaking to me from during our chat. Joan used her international experience and found work at a Christchurch high school where she was in charge of all international students and Alan settled back into teaching. But as their own children left home, Singapore called them back once again and in 2002 they went over there with a plan and it was to work hard, save and invest hard and both retire at the age of 60 and return to New Zealand permanently in 2007 to enjoy their retirement. And right on cue, both at the age of 60 in 2007, that is exactly what they did. You see, long before FIRE was a term, that's financial independence, retire early, Joan and Alan had the plan that they wanted to retire early. While living in Singapore, they had travelled a lot with their kids because Southeast Asia was right on their doorstep. They went all over Indonesia and even up to Russia and Moscow as a family. And Joan and Alan had many, many more trips planned for just the two of them in their long and happy retirement where they could visit all of their international friends after many years of enjoyable travel and work. Now that their three children had left home and established lives of their own, they had things to do. But life can be extremely cruel sometimes and just as they were settling into their retirement, Joan was diagnosed with a brain tumour in September 2008. She passed away just six weeks after that diagnosis and she was just 61 years old. I know, right? What the heck? They had done everything right. They were good people. They had taken some risks. They'd raised a family, travelled and enjoyed a good working life and they'd carefully planned out their retirement. And for Alan to suddenly have his future change so traumatically and in such a finite way must have been simply devastating. And just reading this out again has me reaching for the tissues. With his family for support, he began to adjust to suddenly being on his own again after 38 years of operating as a team and I can only imagine how incredibly hard that must have been. The entire point of the previous six years of working was so that they could save as much as they could and with Joan no longer by his side, he had to think about where to from here. And this seemed a sensible time to share with you what he considers to be his greatest financial triumph. He considers it to be marrying Joan, not because she had money, but because she was so sensible. Together, they always discussed what they would do with money. They always had joint accounts and it was always a team effort, which was made even easier because she was just always knowing the correct decision to make and was able to run the house well and was not extravagant. Now, I've been blogging long enough to realise that if couples are not on the same page, they are going in opposite directions, but these two sounded like the perfect team. And how did they teach their own children about money, their three girls? Well, they didn't sit them down and give them a money talk, but they tried instead to show each one of them that you needed to plan, and they did try to always make them aware of what things cost, and they helped them out where they could too. One of their daughters went to university in England to study, and although Alan told me the fees were horrendous, they paid for that. For another daughter, they bought a house at one stage so she could rent it from them and live with flatmates. So he thinks that what he and Joan did was show them what they were doing with their money rather than telling them and each of the children could see that they were budgeting to carefully allow them to do the things that they wanted to do. I asked Alan if he could retain all of the knowledge he has today regarding money and he could go back to his 15-year-old self and start again. What would he do, whether it be the same or something different? 
he believes he would pretty much do the same. When he was young, they used to save money as school kids. They had the post office savings bank scheme where you took your book into class one day a week and someone came and they collected the money. They took the wee book and a deposit slip and then you got your book back with your new increased amount. So the idea was that saving was really encouraged. I remember these books myself in the very first few years of my school and I can't recall them ever telling us how to actually get money out. It only ever went in, so they were definitely creating a savings mindset. Alan says it's debatable if he was a good saver, I think he was, but they never had a lot of money when he was young, so they simply could not rush out and spend it if they didn't have the cash. You had to save up and buy, that was your only option. Which is so unlike today, where people want everything now and they have access to credit to get it, even school kids, so things sure have changed. Alan's view on debt has always been that he does not like borrowing and he always tried to avoid it if he possibly could. He and Joan had always lived within their means and tried to be debt free. They had a mortgage at one stage but they paid it off as fast as possible because they did not like the feeling of owing money. If he can pay straight away, he will. He does have a credit card, but he only uses it to purchase goods online. And of course, he pays it off in full every month. And when he travels throughout the world, it's not a credit card he uses, but he uses a cash passport instead. Now, we all have wins and we all have losses. So what did Alan consider to be their greatest financial flop? He had two that he wanted to share. And the first was actually a what if. When they lived in Singapore in about 1988, which was during their second stint over there, they were living in a big condominium. And if you've been there, you will know that these things are all over Singapore and are made up of lots of apartments with a swimming pool, tennis court, etc. They're a pretty comfortable place to live. Well, they were renting an apartment and he can't recall the amount they paid, but he said it was reasonable and they could afford it. The building was owned by the Singapore Post Office Savings Bank and one day they received a letter saying that they were selling off property and they were intending to sell their apartment and as a tenant, would they be interested in purchasing it? The asking price was $700,000 and remember the year was 1988 so that was a big chunk of change for a couple of Kiwis when the median house price back home in Christchurch at that time was about $200,000. It would mean taking out a very large mortgage and probably having to hope that they got a good salary increase and good bonuses to be able to save on top of that. They really liked the apartment and it was in a great area but they were really cautious and this was a big, big asking price compared with back home. What if their contract was not renewed? What if the economy took a downturn? So after much thought, they didn't buy, and as it turned out, the whole condominium was purchased in its entirety by a developer, and each apartment went on to sell a few years later for between one and a half and two million dollars. And had they known that prices would never drop and would instead grow year on year, had they taken the plunge, they would have come out of that extremely well, but hindsight is, of course, a wonderful thing. They decided to be cautious instead of adventurous and they did miss out. In a way this led on to their second flop because when they came back to New Zealand they decided to do something with their reasonable sum of money that they could have put into that Singapore apartment. 
It was just in the bank in a term deposit. So they asked around um, the people that they knew and trusted, and based on the recommendation of several other people, they signed up with a financial advisor. And amongst other investments, they put $66,000 with Bridge Corp, who, of course, ended up going bung along with several other New Zealand-run finance companies at the same time. And not only were the people who ran the company a bunch of fraudsters, but to add insult to injury, the financial advisor who put them into the fund, he got good handouts for himself for pushing them towards that investment and signing them up. Although it was a big financial hit, their advisor had actually spread their risk and all of their eggs were not in one basket. While they lost money there, their other investments were actually doing okay. And while we are on the subject of financial advisors, Alan has always used one. His financial advisor, he told me, was a nice, likeable fellow despite losing him $66,000 and accepting the Bridge Corp kickbacks. And apart from that, he actually did things by the board. And Alan, he did go in for regular meetings where they discussed his portfolio and he suggested tweaks to it and the likes of that. He was always given details and information in writing and then it was up to him to decide what to do. He could modify details if he wanted to. Uh, He could be more conservative or he could be more daring if he wanted. And he believed that his financial advisor was really thorough, but he made a big mistake by being drawn into Bridgecorp and getting involved with them happened near the end of his career and he severely regretted the decisions he made and he lost a lot of clients and income as a result. And on a side note, this particular advisor had always talked about when he would retire himself and he had his retirement day and the future all mapped out. In early 2008, just two weeks before his financial advisor retired, Alan went in for a meeting to transfer everything to a new advisor as recommended by his retiring advisor. He told Alan during the meeting that his plan was on his final day he was going to work till lunchtime. Then by 1.30 he would be on his local golf course enjoying 18 holes of golf. And sure enough on that Friday afternoon he did retire and he left the office at lunchtime. And he was on the course by 1.30 and he did play 18 holes but as he walked off the 18th hole he suffered a massive heart attack and he died. Hmm... Crikey, I didn't see that one coming either and for the second time during my chat with Alan I was knocked sideways by this bit of information. I think the moral of the story hearing about his financial advisor is not to spend all of your time thinking when I retire I'm going to do dot dot dot. It's actually to make sure that your life revolves not only around your work. Every day has to be made up of working a bit and doing things that you really enjoy, not putting those things off for some day down the track because as Alan has pointed out life can upset the best laid plans on the bright side the advisor he changed to does still look after him today so what about his investment mix well he has cash available to him and money invested in international fixed interest and New Zealand fixed interest funds he also has bond funds some funds that have New Zealand Australian and international shares and a little bit in property shares as well He has a percentage mix that he sticks to in his portfolio and he told me that his advisor uses his financial education and expertise and chooses big funds that are well managed. Alan also does his own research and all of his money is in funds and not in individual shares. His portfolio is being constantly monitored and there is always fine tuning going on just to get the balance and the risk right. 
the biggest part of his portfolio is in international shares and the smallest is in cash and fixed interest. And currently we're getting hammered by Donald Trump opening his big stupid mouth. And that was my take on things, not exactly what Alan said there. Um, And as a result, equities have taken a hit and Alan has lost some ground. But it did not take him long to learn that all this investing is a really long term game. And you need to be able to ride these waves as they roll up and more recently as they roll down a bit. And given the fact that he is retired and currently aged 71, I was interested to know if he was still building up his portfolio or if he was starting to use up some of his capital now. His portfolio of investments as a whole are going up and up and his withdrawal rate is more than preserving his capital. Even with withdrawals to use for living costs or what have you, he is actually considerably better off now and he is still accumulating wealth and that is definitely his aim. He draws what he calls a modest sum each month down from his investments, plus he also has some money that is not managed by his financial advisor and he has that in a term deposit that he uses for travel and for any house maintenance, for example. And of course he does also collect the New Zealand superannuation. I know that a lot of you listening to this will be aware of the debates around the fees that advisors and fund managers do charge and given the fact that Alan's portfolio will be attracting these fees, I was interested to hear his thoughts. And he told me that he does not mind having to pay them as long as the fund is doing okay. And in his view, the fees charged are not going to kill his fund and that is the price that he is willing to pay for having a good manager. He believes that if a manager is good, then you will be rewarded with high performance. But if a manager is bad, then you need to get the heck out of there. While investments do okay, he does not have a problem with people earning money on his behalf and he likes to pay for good information and for good guidance. And in his view, he is using his financial advisor to generate an income for himself and this seems to be working out just fine. He meets up with his financial advisor about three times a year and he can also ring him anytime at all or go online and look at his own investment status per category. And if he gets alarmed, he can simply phone him up and he explain that the fees he pays are not hidden from him and he has information of all fees charged for each individual fund. So he clearly feels that the fees he pays are the price of doing business when others may disagree and that's a conversation for you to have around the dinner table tonight perhaps. Now Alan pointed out that a lot of people make no effort to save for a rainy day. Through hard work and careful planning, Alan and Joan had certainly reached financial independence and now in his retirement he is certainly getting to enjoy the rewards of all of that toil. And I'm sure that coping with the loss of his wife was made easier by the fact that money was something that he did not have to worry about and he could focus instead on working through his own grief. My next question was how does he keep track of his day-to-day spending? Does he have a written budget for example? Well he told me that he used to keep a budget for a good long while but not anymore. He is always aware of his outgoings and he always pays his bills promptly on the due date. His bank account is set up so that all frequent payments are handled automatically and that includes uh, putting money aside for travel or car repairs or for house maintenance or what have you Uh, and they go into different savings funds for this. For example, he knows he is going to need to replace his garage door soon at a cost of up to $5,000, so he is planning for that expense now. And he never goes to the supermarket without a list, but instead always knows what he needs rather than buying on impulse. And he tries to be pretty organised in that fashion. Now very occasionally he gets caught out, like he did when he went through the Christchurch earthquake repair process. 
He was paid out $15,000 by EQC, but it turned out that the repairs actually cost a lot more and he had to wear this cost. And this just confirmed to him that you need to have a supply of money available in an emergency and for him to be comfortable, this balance always sits at around $20,000. Now this was a good conversation to have because I know for those setting up a budget for the very first time in an attempt to get their spending and saving under control, they think that this might be just a temporary thing, but I'm sorry to have to tell you it's not. If you want to be good with money, then budgeting needs to become a way of life for your entire life and you need it to become a habit so that even when, uh, like Alan, you don't write it all down anymore, it is just so innate that mentally you are doing the spending and savings calculations in your head anyway. A fun question to ask people, yes, because personal finance is fun, um, whether they are financially sorted or not is, if you were given $10,000 right now, what would you do with it? Well, Alan was quick to answer that he would put it towards his travel fund. He has a trip planned to visit America um, in the middle of the year to visit some old friends in Massachusetts, and he will be spending about a month away from New Zealand. This money could be used for that instead of him pulling it out of his own travel fund. And... It feels a bit grim to discuss this next point, but I think it's important that we did. What about the day when Alan passes away? Well, he has thought about that as well. I tell you, this guy is pretty well organised. He is all set and he has a when I die file clearly marked, I presume, in his filing cabinet. He said that it was a Rotary Club initiative and they produced a booklet where you can fill in details about your banking, your insurance, your investments and things like your funeral plan so that those going looking for this information either immediately upon your death or when they settle your estate, they know who to contact and where you have everything. Alan has seen friends leave a paperwork mess behind and he did not want this to be him. So he has typed up a bunch of stuff too, making his wishes very clear, well as clear as possible, to his family and showing them who to contact. Now I suspect that as a retired teacher he has spent his entire life educating others and in order to do this he has also continuously sought to educate himself and I wondered if he could share any great resources with us. Well, regarding his investments, he is always being sent literature about them from his financial advisor and he picks and chooses what he reads and researches, but otherwise he actually does not tend to look for extra information on investing, but he does have one secret weapon and that is a good friend. They meet up on the last Friday of every month in a cafe and they spend a bit of time solving the problems of the world Uh, and they are both in a similar situation financially and personally and they act as a sounding board and they ask each other about things that they are doing and investing in and I know from talking to hundreds of people over the last couple of years about personal finance that a good friend you can talk about money with is just gold. So many of us are looking for that good mate to just sit and have a chat with and the fact that Alan has this is just brilliant. Well, it's almost time to wrap up now, but before I do, here is a quick message from today's sponsor. A huge thank you to Superlife's My Future Fund for helping me bring this episode to you today. Superlife, managed by SmartShares, lets you save for any child in your life and give them the gift of a secure financial future. Visit superlife.co.nz to view the product disclosure statement and use the quick link Invest for Children to find out more. 
I just wanted to thank Alan for being such an open book and answering all of my many questions. Like I said at the beginning, I was a little bit nervous about approaching him, but I'm so glad I did. I've learned so, so much. Not so much about the numbers, but about relationships and life instead. I talk all the time and I'm endlessly curious about what journey other people are on. People are such a great resource for learning how to deal with our own lives and if they can explain to you their own experiences and how they coped when life happened to them, then I can put some of their ideas in my own toolkit for when sometime down the track life also happens to me. Their experiences will make me that much more resilient. Talking to Alan and hearing about how he and Joan planned together, saved together, loved each other and lived such a full and rich life together, it's just got so many parallels with my own life and to hear that just as they got to a new chapter together she so suddenly passed away was really heartbreaking. But if you and I are going to apply his journey to our own lives, then I suggest we think about the following. Money is simply a tool, a tool to help you enjoy this day and enjoy these experiences because each of them will teach you something. But while you need to live in the moment, it is also really important to plan carefully for tomorrow, even though you don't know what that tomorrow will look like. And finally, and most importantly, I think we all have to focus on the people in our lives and make sure we enjoy every single moment that we are together and take every opportunity because we just don't know what tomorrow will bring. So I hope you enjoyed hearing about Alan's journey as much as I did. And until next time, happy saving.